be seated. Well, in a, a week or two, uh, our nation will likely hear a State of the Union address. This is an address that happens every year, and while the speeches may vary in emphasis and duration and content from year to year, there's a phrase that's so commonly heard and spoken, it has almost become a kind of tradition, and it's those words, quote, the State of the Union is strong. Uh, With all that's unfolded in 2020, even recently what has unfolded and the kind of unrest that we have seen, you wonder if those words will be stated. I've read some in, in some form of that phrase, uh, it's been used by every president in almost every year since 1983 when Ronald Reagan first introduced it. The words are so commonly used, one might wonder, what does it mean to be strong? Can we become weak? Strength is something we all desire. Strength is admirable. Whether it's a strong physical body uh, or strength in a marriage or particular relationship, strength in a family, uh, a strong church, a strong economy, we admire, we desire strength. But what does it mean to be strong as a Christian? What does that mean? Uh, Why do we need this kind of strength? Where does this strength come from? How do we obtain it? And it's into those questions that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and addresses those questions at the end of Ephesians chapter 6. They're such relevant questions, such a relevant subject. What is strength? How do we obtain it? Especially in this time in which many of us may feel weary, weakened, vulnerable. So I turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, uh, verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, essentially the closing words of this letter. Listen now to God's word. Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
if one was a new believer in Jesus Christ and they were hearing Paul's words for the first time or someone was inquiring about uh, the, the Christian faith and they heard these words, uh, they might be surprised by the prevalence of warfare imagery. They might wonder, isn't the church to be about peace? Why am I hearing here about a conflict that uh, we are to be engaged in? Furthermore, one might think of how outdated the imagery is. A breastplate, uh, shields, swords. Aren't we, we living in the 21st century? Can't we update the imagery well, well, to properly hear Paul's words in their first century context, his original hearers, I want to make two initial points. First of all, throughout the Old Testament, God is portrayed as a warrior, and his servants are portrayed as his troops who need to draw from his strength. Paul's words and imagery familiar to his original audience knows he's drawing from that tradition in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Or the psalmist in Psalm 35, 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. In other words, the Lord is portrayed in both the Old Testament and New Testament as one who's deeply and imminently involved in leading his people into battle. We can't escape that imagery and that reality. We are in a fight, in a battle, spiritually, in which our God is our warrior king. Yes, a gracious father, but our warrior king who leads his people into battle. Secondly... The ancient imagery here of, of armor and the specific pieces of equipment that Paul is identifying is deeply significant. We can't change the images or, or kind of modernize it to fit our own current situation. So we can't speak about the M16 of righteousness. It's not going to work. The tank of faith, the grenade of the spirit, it will not work in the context it turns out that, that the parts, uh, part of the power of these metaphors is derived from the particular part of the body that those equipment pieces protect. And they're also deeply rooted in the Old Testament. We've heard it read earlier from Isaiah. We'll hear it again. Isaiah 59, 17, uh, the Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on a helmet of salvation on his head. So that this armor that Paul's referring to is not the armor of man. This is the armor of God. And to be putting on the armor is to be putting on the Lord himself. Which means that the kind of strength that Paul's talking about has everything to do with a very close relationship with this God. These final words that Paul mentions here in Ephesians 6 are part of a longer argument he's been making through the whole of his letter to the church in Ephesus. Many of us are familiar with a lot of Ephesians, uh, a lot of the content of, of, of Ephesians, and the way that Paul often structures his writing and letters. The first three chapters are Paul's theological argument. 
communicating and arguing all that we have in Jesus Christ spiritually. And then the latter three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, is the practical application of that truth. So if you turn to chapter 4, the first half of chapter 4, Paul brings us inside the church and applies this truth to us. He communicates and encourages unity and peace among the church. At the end of 4 and into the beginning of 5, he then brings the church out into the world and reminds the church that we are light in the midst of darkness. At the end of 5, into the beginning of 6, he brings us back into the church and even further into the church to the family. And he addresses wives and husbands, children and parents. And now at the end of chapter 6, he's brought us back out into the world again. Paul here is essentially communicating to us what it means to be Christians in a godless society. That's what we have here. So he brings us inside the church, and then outside, inside, and then outside again. And the first thing Paul calls us to know is our enemy. We are to know who our enemy is. Because we're living in a war that is vast... And yet it is subtle. We see this in verses 10 to 13. Be strong in the Lord and in his strength. It's very clear where this uh, strength comes from. And how do we obtain it? By putting on the whole armor of God. But before he explains this armor, he tells us why we need this armor at all. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. It's very clear, first of all, we do not have the power to resist or overcome this enemy on our own. This evil will not be overcome by our moral resolve, our personal courage, or our goodwill toward other people. The enemy is too great. He has a massive and vast army at his disposal. Cosmic, spiritual powers. When Paul uses the language rulers, authorities, cosmic power, spiritual forces of evil, he doesn't mean the social and political order of his day. He means the spiritual, the invisible, and demonic forces behind what we see. So that the greatest battle that the church faces is not a societal one. It's not first a cultural one. It's not first a political one. It is first and foremost a spiritual battle. Spiritual battle. Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, he's not suggesting that there aren't people, leaders, or magistrates, in his day or our own, bent on opposing the things of God, advancing wickedness and ungodliness. Rather, he's pointing out the fact that the greater enemy is what is behind those things. That's where the battle lies. You and I have sin to battle. We have a world that we live in that may oppose the things of God and the church of Christ. 
But behind those things is the evil one seeking to undo our godly lives, our hope and confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's wanting to undo us and to discourage and to destroy us as the people of God. And this is so crucial and practical on the relational front within the life of, the, of a church, uh, the life of an immediate family, marriage. Think about it. A, a spouse says something belittling to their husband or their wife. Or a brother or sister in Christ says or does something that is offensive to us. A church leader knowingly or unknowingly hurts one's feelings or treads on another person's toes. We have to ask ourselves, are these just outward exchanges? Was it just a slip of the tongue or a misstep in behavior? Is that all that we see as we go about our lives? If that's all we see, we will completely miss the entire arena where the evil one is seeking to use those exchanges those behaviors, uh, those words, to sow seeds of bitterness, division, discord, discouragement. That's what he's seeking to do. Sowing seeds where he can plant those things. When Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul knew full well, and he experienced it deeply, the relational wrestling and conflict that can happen on a human level on the social, on the political level. But more importantly, Paul knew the deeper battle that lies beneath what we see and hear, the battle that takes place on the ground of the human heart. God is seeking to strengthen and grow his people in holiness and righteousness and godliness through all that happens. That's the strength that he's seeking to work in his people. I think it's astonishing and I hope encouraging that Paul here at this time could write to these believers and to offer them strength. Be, it's a command even. Be strong in the Lord. That they could experience what it is to be strong. Here they are, one local church in a prominent city, a godless city at that. A city built on magical beliefs. These are people who boasted of the great temple uh, of the goddess Artemis. Uh, Ephesus hosted a, a great theater seating up to 20,000 people. We read in Acts chapter 19 the, that, that people would chant, chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I think by any outward observation, these believers would not have appeared strong amidst a large and godless city. By mere numbers, by mere statistics, they would appear weak irrelevant. But Paul knew where strength comes from, what strength looks like. That godly strength is not the result of economics, who's in office, or what society one person happens to be living in as a Christian. Strength comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, there's an important backdrop I think, to Ephesians chapter 6. And it comes in one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament, which is Revelation chapter 12. I would encourage you to turn there. I'm going to read from verse 7. In Revelation 12, we're introduced to that ancient serpent, the dragon. 
the devil, who seeks to lead the whole world astray. And this is what we read in Revelation 12, verse 7. There was a war that arose in heaven. Michael, that is the guardian of the people of God, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That that ancient serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath and fury, because he knows his time is short. We learn there was a great conflict and a great victory won by our God through Jesus Christ. God victoriously conquered sin and death through the blood of Jesus Christ. We stand, as Paul emphasizes through his words to the Ephesians, we stand in that victory by the blood of Jesus Christ. But notice where the devil has come. Down to the earth. He's filled with fury because he knows his days are short. Friends, as we continue in our Christian lives, uh, we ought to do so in light of the fact that ultimately the battle, the ultimate battle in war has been won. And yet at the same time we must know it's not over. It has been won, but it is not yet over. Uh, Many of us will remember the the Persian Gulf War from 1990 to 1991. Whatever you thought of the circumstances or motivations of that war, there were over 30 allied nations and coalition forces led by the U.S., uh, over a quarter of a million troops being sent in to Kuwait, Iraq, laser-guided missiles. I remember, even as a 12 or 13-year-old boy, knowing Saddam Hussein does not have a chance. This is going to be a decisive victory. And indeed it was. But it didn't mean there wasn't conflict. Did Saddam Hussein, Hussein simply give in? Wave a white flag? No, conflict ensued. Conflict ensued. It's precisely because Satan knows his defeat... He knows his days are short, that he is all the more furious. That's our circumstance. We've got a defeated foe who's furious. We live in light of that. Stand firm. So Satan's throwing his last blows. And while we feel his fury, we're called, as Paul says, stand firm. Firm, stand therefore, 
in light of this fact, he who is with us is greater than he who is against us. We're called to know our enemy. But then Paul says we're also called to know our armor. And that's what we have in verses 13 to 17. He describes the armor, the equipment of a well-prepared Roman soldier. That's the image. So he says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. As a metaphor, the the belt referred to here is holding up the, the Roman soldier's tunic, his lower garments, enabling him to have his legs free so he could move about easily for battle, running, fighting. It communicated here, it communicates a picture of readiness and preparedness, this belt. But as you unpack the metaphor, we learn that Paul is clearly drawing from Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, Isaiah 11 is a passage we often hear around Christmas time. It's a very uh, powerfully messianic uh, text speaking about the coming Redeemer, the Christ. And there in Isaiah 11, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, from the line of David. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. It says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. As we've heard and will continue to see, this armor, this equipment, is representative of the very person of God, the very person of Christ. To to put on this armor is to be putting on Jesus Christ. The, The righteousness and faithfulness in Isaiah 11 mentioned is referring to the right, the character of Christ. His reliability, his truthfulness, his holy character. And for us, it is to live in the likeness of that character. To be truthful, reliable, faithful. Uh, The evil one is seeking, prowling, seeking to deceive and accuse the people of God. And we're called to be prepared for that fight. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis imagines... Uh, one demon named Screwtape writing letters to his nephew named Wormwood, giving him advice about how to overcome Christians, deceive and discourage them. And in one letter he writes this, My dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that your patient, a Christian, has has become a believer. We must make the best of the situation. There's no need to despair, however. Hundreds of these so-called adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. And then he says this, all the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Oh, sure, he's, he professes belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But really, all that he says, all that he does, is representative of our camp. To buckle on the belt of truth is to come to Jesus Christ the righteous and holy and reliable one, to trust in his saving grace, that his spirit will be working in us a holy life, a consistent life, a truthful life. It's in part about the character of of the believer. Then we're ready, then we're prepared uh, for the battle or the fight. So buckle on the belt of truth. Then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Once again, Paul brings us back into Isaiah. We've heard it read earlier, Isaiah 59, 16 and 17. It says, The Lord saw that there was no justice, and it displeased him. 
Then his own arm brought him salvation. His own righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. So this breastplate of righteousness is God's very own. But notice, Paul is telling us to appropriate it. Paul's telling us to put it on. And certainly without it, we will surely fall. Uh, In battle, the breastplate protected the, the vital organs. So it's as if Paul is saying, if you don't have the breastplate, you're going to lose battles. Now, in one way, we could say, well, this righteousness is referring to uh, the believer's justification. We are counted or reckoned righteous, robed in the righteousness of Christ. First uh, Peter chapter 3. Christ died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Or Romans 5, we've been justified or reckoned righteous, and so we have peace with God. Indeed, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. That is true. But this breastplate of righteousness is also referring to a believer whose life is growing and being sanctified in the likeness of God. Now, Paul has already been communicating this in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Verse 22 and following, when he said, put off your old self, that old manner of life, and put on the new self, he says, after the likeness, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And that's referring to our sanctification, our character as growing believers. So it's not only that we've been justified and counted righteous, but that the Christian is growing in holiness. And you know, in the midst of the devil's schemes and efforts and spiritual warfare, that is protective armor. That's what protected Joseph when Potiphar sought to tempt him to be unfaithful. What did Joseph say? How can I do such great wickedness and sin against God? His protection there, in a sense, certainly by the grace of God, was hunger for God. I love my God. I want to serve my God. So he's wanting us to grow in our love and our hunger for for the Lord. We should recognize that, you know, while at times we feel unsure or we fall or we have doubts or we feel unprepared for the battle that lies ahead, notice the Lord's not given to us just one piece of equipment. He has given an entire outfit for the believer. A full provision to be appropriated for the Christian. So he goes on, verse 15, to put shoes on for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Once again, we're brought back to Isaiah. This time, Isaiah 52. It's a word about God's coming salvation. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. This is a picture of a soldier or a messenger coming back from a victory, a a, a battle victory, running over the hills, running over the mountaintops, back to Judea to announce to the people, we have won. Our God reigns. We are victorious. And it's a message of good news. It's a message of peace. It's a message of joy. If you 
refer back to Revelation 12, which I read earlier, we're told who it is that overcomes uh, the devil in his fury. That Christians overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Those words, the word of their testimony, it's not suggesting that they told their testimony a lot, but that they were bearing witness to the gospel message. They were speaking about the good news. They were talking about the gospel. They were bearing witness to this truth and this event. God's good news, his victory over sin and over death. That good news of his grace that calls me his own. Shoes fitted with the readiness to announce the gospel. You know, that means for us that we really can't be righteous and silent as Christians. We can't be righteous and silent. How will people know the good news if it's not announced? And then in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. As a metaphor, this Roman shield was about four feet high, two and a half feet wide, originally made of wood. But the Romans quickly learned that their opponents would shoot these arrows and on the tips of the arrows attach um, pitch bags and they would light them on fire, shooting them, inevitably sinking into the wood and burning the shield. So the Romans began covering their shields with skins soaked in water to protect them, inevitably putting out the fire as the arrow was sticking into the shield. That's the picture. Extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And this is crucial because it is a call to so trust in Christ and his great provision, his great protection, that when the evil one shoots those darts, and oftentimes they're accusations to the people of God, they're accusations, the evil one will come to us and essentially, in our mind, say to us, you know, you really ought to be ashamed. The secret thoughts that you have, that you entertain, the sins that you commit and have committed, or he says to us, says to us, you're going to worship God, a God who allows suffering, evil in this world. Or he says to us, you'll never be greatly used of God with your gifts and your talents. And how are we to respond to those accusations? Are we to say, well, there's truth there, but I try really hard. I really try to measure up. I, I give it my best. I don't think so. We ought to respond with something like the words of the hymns that we sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what we heard in John 12. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Or another hymn, my faith has found a resting place. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. 
It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And then we take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. A final time, Paul draws from Isaiah, Isaiah 59, this helmet is the very helmet of God. His own hand, his own arm worked salvation. This is the salvation of God. This is all a picture of provision and supplies, not that you and I muster up or that we provide, but that God has provided and worked for his people. And then his word, his precious promises, containing everything I need for life and godliness. Paul says in verse 19, Pray also for me, for I am an ambassador in chains. Think about Paul at this point in his life and ministry, writing from prison. He's already experienced tremendous opposition and suffering and hardship. I'm sure Paul had felt many times pressed, weak, uh, weary, pushed to his limit. And perhaps some of us feel weakened or wearied, fearful or in doubt today. But we have to ask ourselves, what kind of God we desire to worship? Do we desire a God who's a kind of genie in a bottle? We can kind of maneuver, manipulate to create outcomes that we personally desire? One who fits the small contours of our limited understanding? Or do we want a God whose will and providence is so great it goes beyond our full grasp? And we're called to trust in him. And then when we feel weary or pressed or we're feeling in doubt, we have to always weigh in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We might feel empty at times in the battle, but God gave his son to purchase our redemption. So I leave us with a few applications. First of all, in weary times, be alert. Paul says, pray at all times, keep alert. I think weary times, weariness can turn naturally, turn ourselves inward, and we begin to elevate ourselves above others. When we're hurting, it is natural to do that. Or when we're weary or feeling pressed, I think it is natural of the old nature to place self before others. Be alert of this. Use this time, this season of life and ministry to consider others before ourselves. Paul's not addressing one individual. He's addressing the church collectively, corporately. Help another take up the shield of faith. Help another put on the breastplate of righteousness. Help another wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, for their own lives. Be alert. Second, in weary times, see the value of perseverance. I think that's one of the blessings of this season that we are in, that God is affording his people. The value of perseverance. It's a wonderful doctrine, but when the rubber meets the road, it's a challenge. What does it mean to be perseverant, persistent, following after the Lord? God uses challenging times to cause us to persevere and to shape his people, to grow us in character and hope. And then finally, in weary times, measure your strength 
not by the size of your faith or the feelings you have about your faith, but by the object of your faith. The size of our faith does not save us, does not cause us to persevere. It is ultimately the object of our faith, our precious Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of J. Gresham Machen's work, Christianity and Liberalism, he writes these words, and I'll end with this. Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation, race from race, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the strength that you provide your people and for your precious word that draws us near to you. We pray, O oh Lord, by your grace, by your spirit at work within us, that you would cause us to be putting on the full armor of God. You have provided us all that we need. O oh Lord, we pray that you would be indeed our warrior king leading us as Christian soldiers, to be fighting that spiritual battle in this, your world. We pray that we would do that, Lord, as one, encouraging, helping one another, bearing one another's burdens. Lord, we thank you that you have equipped us and that, Lord, when we fall, we rest upon your grace. Continue to guide us, Lord, as your people. May you fill us with hope. May you fill us with joy. May you fill us with courage, Lord, to be a people who proclaim the gospel. Your saving mercies through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.